Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Tim Rasmussen, and you're listening to Pop Violence. Well, folks, today is the day we're talking about Star Wars. So I am a huge Star Wars fan and have been my entire life. It's one of my favorite film series ever. I love the books. I love the art. I love the cheap and cheesy memorabilia. I love Star Wars. And so I'm really excited to jump into a really interesting and uh, thoughtful analysis here of most specifically Return of the Jedi, which is episode six, but really the entire saga. And so for today, in sort of a shift in focus from most of our past episodes here on Pop Violence, we're going to be doing a couple interesting things today. Number one is this is considered a crossover podcast episode. We're crossing over with another podcast, which I co-host and co-create called Sabak Talk. That is an exclusively a Star Wars themed podcast where we talk about new material and old material and give our thoughts and analyses of different Star Wars media. The other thing that's going to be a little bit different about this episode is that we're really going to be diving into peace building theory. Whereas in our previous episodes, we've really been trying to understand violence oppression, systemic violence, cultural violence, structural violence. And we've talked a lot about justice and the violence of the justice system and really taking that critical stance overall. Today, we're going to be talking about a theory for how peace building can be done, how nonviolence can be carried out. And while peace building and nonviolent theory have a lot of important criticisms and important shortcomings that we need to acknowledge and I hope to continue to acknowledge throughout the second half of the pop violence season. Today we're going to kind of get into I guess some of the basics of what peace building means through Star Wars. And so I'm really excited to introduce you to this upcoming interview and this crossover podcast episode. Hope that you enjoy. Thank you guys so much for being here. Chad Ford and Blake Julander. This is going to be really great. Yeah, excited to be here. It's going to be fun. Yeah, super, super excited. Always, <laughs> always up to talk Star Wars. Yes, I hope that we can, I hope that we can kind of uh, lean into that too, right? Like, I feel like all of us, I mean, at least for me, like, 
this is an opportunity to talk about like two two of my my greatest passions in life so it's exciting let's uh i think that it would be a great if you if you both could introduce yourselves a little bit so the listeners of pop violence that don't know who you guys are can get an idea of, of sort of your backgrounds and why you're here on the podcast this week my name is Chad Ford. I am the director of the David O. McKay Center for Intercultural Understanding and uh, a professor uh, in peacebuilding uh, at uh, BYU Hawaii. And uh, recently wrote a book, uh, Dangerous Love, Transforming Fear and Conflict at Home, uh, at Work and in the World, really focused on peacebuilding and how to overcome our fear of conflict and use dangerous love to be able to actually transform conflict in a way that ultimately leads to reconciliation. Awesome. Awesome. And Blake? Man, yeah, it's going to be hard to follow that though, uh, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just uh, Blake Julander, uh, you know, one half of Sabak Talk. Um, yep. I actually am a former student of Chad, uh, got my degree in peace building. Uh, so I have uh, a little bit of experience in uh, some peace building, uh, not as much as Chad, but, and uh, obviously big Star Wars fan and always up for talking Star Wars and peace building. It's a great, great connections there. So I'm really excited for this podcast. Yeah, it's going to be sweet. Um, and yeah, I'll point that out too, that, you know, that's, that's definitely where I think the three of our paths have all crossed at one time or another. I was a student of Chad's at the David O. McKay Center. That's where me and Blake became friends and, you know, that's obviously where we came in connection with you, Chad. And so it's all coming full circle here. It's all coming full circle, talking about Star Wars and peace building um, and getting into it a little bit. So the focus of today's episode, I asked you guys to watch Return of the Jedi or to come with thoughts about Return of the Jedi most specifically. But I do want to talk about sort of the whole saga and not really like confine ourselves to just Return of the Jedi and to apply it really through this, uh, this lens that Chad kind of, you kind of got us started with it um, in an article that you wrote, I guess would have been almost two years ago about Return of the Jedi and dangerous love. And so let's start there with that concept and that, that phrase, dangerous love. I think that maybe, and I know that you've run into this, like people don't fully have a grasp on that because it sounds kind of like dangerous love sounds outside of what a social theory ought to sound like or a conflict theory ought to sound like. So I was wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit more and explain a little bit of what dangerous love means. And it's funny that the article you're referring to was actually um, <laughs> edited out of the book uh, by our editor who was not a Star Wars fan. Uh, and because he wasn't a Star Wars fan, oh, he, didn't, he didn't get the analogy, but it was actually really early on in the book. I make this huge Star Wars analogy um, in the book, which of course resonated deeply with me, but uh -huh. I, I get it. Not everybody uh, is a Star Wars fan and, and it, it didn't land for him. And so it ended up being a, a, a separate uh, article I wrote right when uh, the last uh, Star Wars movie um, uh, came back out. And the premise of the book is that when we, when we experience conflict, the most common reaction to it is fear. And, and because we experience fear when conflict comes our way, we have a very primal reactions uh, to fear that, that pretty much everybody's familiar with, the, the fight or flight uh, sort of reaction, right? And so the typical one is actually flight. If I can get away from the conflict, if I can avoid it, if I can just make it go away somehow, 
that is the easiest way for us to deal with conflict. And so, and so we run if we can. If we can't run, then we have to stop and fight. And conflict becomes a competitive endeavor where now our goal is to defeat the other person um, and, and to win. And, and both of these reactions are pretty primal. And what both of them do is essentially shut down the areas of our brain that allow for collaborative problem solving. And so if you look at the neuroscience angle of this, certain parts of our brain uh, are activated when we're doing collaboration, problem solving, when we're, th when we're thinking uh, creatively about things. But when we're experiencing fear, those parts of our brain don't really work very well. And we get in these established ruts. In fact, we have a long history of, of experiencing conflict as fear. And so how do you help people move to collaborative problem solving, uh, which is usually the ideal of mediation and, and you know, really conflict transformation work, if they're experiencing that fear and the brains just really sort of can't handle it uh, in a certain way. And to me, the antidote for that is that we're going to ask people to engage in dangerous love. The danger part is that if conflict feels scary to me or dangerous, that I'm act actually asking them to do something. When I'm asking someone to collaborate or problem solve with another person that they're in conflict with, I'm asking them to do something that they are going to perceive as potentially dangerous to them. Sometimes physical, usually emotional, usually it's about vulnerability or what's going to happen to me if I do this thing or what have you. And then the love mm -hmm. part, I'm not talking about romantic love. Uh, I'm not talking about the sort of love that means like, uh, in other words, like I love pizza or chocolate, or I love my friends or my dog or, or things like that. I'm talking about the sort of love that translates into that someone else's needs, wants, desires, they matter just as much to me as my own. And because I see their humanity as, as equal to mine, and their needs and desires is equal, not, not higher, not lower, but equal. I am willing to roll up my sleeves, engage with them, even if it's scary and sit and work through this process until we come out with an outcome that, that really works for both of us. And, and this sort of love is, is really hard. It's really challenging to do this. And that's why I refer to it as dangerous. And then my book is really sort of laying out why that strategy and, and my belief after doing you know, years of conflict work and mediation is really the only way to get to true conflict transformation and reconciliation. You can get to conflict management without it. I think you can even get to some, some forms of conflict resolution without it. But if you really want the conflict to transform and really want the parties to reconcile, then, then dangerous love is the way. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I want to, I was wondering if you could clarify a little bit what you mean by the difference between those words like conflict management, resolution, transformation, reconciliation. I think that maybe that could be helpful for those listening. Yeah. Conflict management to me is that I just take as a given that the conflict is going to exist and it's going to continue to exist. And so really what I'm trying to do is just mitigate uh, its negative, negative aspects of it. So to me, you know, conflict management is the UN coming into Cyprus and creating a, you know, 10 mile no man's land uh, to keep the Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriot uh, parties apart. It's a, uh, it's a school teacher on a playground fight going and getting in between two kids and separating them to stop them from hurting each other anymore. Is it useful? Absolutely, right? Obviously, conflict can escalate to the point that it can do real damage and stopping that damage from happening is really important. But you know, when, when the teacher separates those two kids, 
the teacher has to kind of stay there separated between those two kids or the conflict erupts again. The United Nations that came in uh, with the UN peacekeeping troops in the 1970s uh, into Cyprus, they're still there. Uh, they're still manning that zone uh, all mm-hmm. these years later. And, and why are they doing it? Because they didn't really do anything to get any further than the conflict. And, and so it's, it's a pessimistic view of conflict that we're probably not ever going to be able to work this out, but let's put some things into place that will keep it from escalating too far. And then conflict resolution is that I'm going to deal with the substantive issues of the conflict. I'm going to try to bargain my way through conflict uh, in a way that's going to ultimately end up in some sort of compromise between the parties where uh, they get some of what they want. uh, I get some of what I want. um, We walk away, we lose some things as well. And we're going to sort of deal with the conflict at the positions, the way the parties uh, stated that. And again, there's use, there's a lot of use for that. That's Mm -hmm. typically our legal system and sort of how uh, they're going to approach problems, but it doesn't get at the deeper issues that cause the conflict, nor does it address the relationship. Um, issues that are at the heart of the conflict. When we get to conflict transformation, now we're talking about relationships. We're talking that that at the deepest level of conflict, it's about how people see each other um, and how people relate to each other. And transforming those relationships ultimately creates the space to be able to transform the actual conflict and, and is, an, is a better way to get a sustainable solution to a problem uh, than just conflict resolution. And then reconciliation is the really messy business Uh, thinking about all the harm that's happened in the past because of the conflict, all of the ramifications of that conflict, and how do we go about the process of healing from that and setting our new relationship, whether that's individuals or community or whatever, on on a path forward that is going to allow that conflict to not happen again. And, and so those are all stages of peace building in my mind. They all play important roles. I've been really interested in my work on how we get to those last two levels, the transformation mm-hmm. and the reconciliation. Thank you for explaining that. that that's, uh, that's really great. And I think if we have time, I'd love to continue to explore that in relationship to, because I think that with this podcast, you know, obviously it's pop violence. And so I'm really focusing a lot on understanding, deconstructing and, and interrogating systems of violence and systemic violence and oppression. And I, I, I'm cur- I, I think hopefully we can get to that later on about how we can frame or approach it in this sort of conflict transformation mindset um, in relationship to dangerous love. But, but before we get into any of that, we definitely need to acknowledge, you know, why we're here in a lot of ways, which is the fact that somehow everything that you just explained about peace building has, has also taken shape for you in some ways because of and through Star Wars. And so let's, let, I would love to hear a little bit of your explanation of that and, and how the Return of the Jedi might apply to what you're describing right now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, <laughs> and so I actually saw Star Wars, the original Star Wars, uh, which is now episode four, New Hope, before mm-hmm. it was episode four, uh, in, in movie theaters when I was uh, six years old. And, um, and, when I saw it, it, w- it just blew my mind. I mean, there was ne- never anything like this before, but how my six-year-old brain handled Star Wars, the original one, is you defeat evil by blowing up Death Stars, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the ultimate triumph at the end of Star Wars was evil is defeated when Luke Skywalker blows up that Death Star. And by the way, that's, that's sort of a great example of conflict management, right? Like uh, how, how do we stop the empire from uh, blowing up planets and continuing to sort of choke out the galaxy? We, we blow up the Death Star. We take away their biggest weapon, their biggest tool. Mm-hmm. But if 
if you think about it, um, what happens next is so fascinating. And now I'm nine when um, Empire uh, Strikes Back comes out and I, and I wait in line. Uh, my mom lets me out of school. I'm waiting in line. I'm so excited. I have all the Star Wars action figures at this point. I actually have a Luke Skywalker costume that my mom had hand sewn for me uh, that I, I would refuse to take off. I mean, I, I was everything in my <laughs> life was about Star Wars uh, by the time I was nine years old. And I'm, I can't wait to get into this and, and see all the positive things that happened because they blew up the Death Star. And I was shocked as a nine-year-old that things weren't going so well for the Rebel Alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they blew up the Death Star did not allow them to defeat the Empire. The Empire was back. They were chasing them. They're stuck on Hoth and this ice planet hiding away um, from you know, from the empire and pretty much everything that can go wrong for the rebel Alliance goes wrong in empire strikes back. It's a much darker movie and something that as a nine-year-old I'm not expecting at, at all. I mean, I'm just, it's, it's deep and it's, it's heavier in a way that I haven't really thought about. And there's this sort of pivotal moment for me when Luke is on Dagobah and he's talking to Yoda and he's getting the training from, from Yoda, which I'm really confused about because <laughs> Yoda isn't just training him with weapons and everything else. He's, he's, he's doing something really different with Luke, which Luke is resisting and I'm resisting mm-hmm. as a nine-year-old uh, in the movie. And so when Yoda tells him, beware of the dark side and you know, <laughs> anger, fear, and aggression <laughs> and the dark side of the force are they. Yeah. Um, and, and he invites Luke into the cave I, I think that that's one of two times in that movie that my nine-year-old brain just blows up, right? Because he <laughs> he he tells Luke to not take his weapons into this scary dark cave, and I'm like literally, I'm not because I, I do this. I'm literally screaming at the 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 screen, "Take your lightsaber! Take your you know, mm. take your weapons!" Yoda's crazy, and when he gets in there and Darth Vader shows up, I'm like nodding my head. See, I told you Darth Vader was going to be down there, but then when he <laughs> strikes down Darth Vader in that cave, sorry. I'm assuming there's not going to be any spoilers for anybody that, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. that would be listening to this podcast. Um, and, and the mask goes open and it's Luke. I have no idea what to do with that. I mean, my, my head is just, why is that Luke Skywalker? I was so confused and actually really upset about it. And so now you're on Cloud City. Luke's fighting Darth Vader. Luke's hand is chopped off. I'm freaking out in the audience about what's going on. How is Darth Vader winning this fight? And when, when Vader tells Luke, I'm your father, I literally stand up on my chair in the movie theater and scream, no, it's not true. He's lying. My mother cannot console me um, because there's no way in my mind at nine years old that Vader could be the father of Luke Skywalker. I mean, he's a monster. Uh, he's evil. Luke Skywalker is the good guy. There's no way. Um, that this could possibly be true. And I'm, I'm unconsolable for days after the end of Empire Strikes Back. I mean, I, 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 my whole world is just blown up. And, and then you got a long wait. Return of the Jedi takes three years for it to come out. It's not released until 1983. And, and my whole time from my age of like nine to 12, my theory walking around is this was all a lie. It was all a ruse. Um, the Darth Vader, no way Darth Vader um, is the father of Luke Skywalker. And then you find out really early on in Return of the Jedi he is. And, at 12, you really rest, I'm really wrestling um, with this idea of what in, the, what in the world is going on here. And then Luke does something that's so unexpected to me, uh, it, it, which is that he turns himself into Darth Vader. He, he actually this time does what Yoda instructed him to do in Empire Strike Back, your weapons you will not need. Um, right. He comes in essentially unarmed, not going to fight the Empire, but mm-hmm. he's going to try to turn Darth Vader. 
Um, and he's going to do it not through force, uh, not through a physical force, um, but through love force. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Luke now really is a Jedi. And so, you know, in those pivotal scenes in Return of the Jedi now where the, imp- the Emperor's there and they're in the new Death Star and, and Vader's there and they're having this conversation, uh, everything that um, the Emperor is trying to do now is to get Luke to use physical force again, to get him to use violence um, as the way of defeating, to get him to tap into his anger and, and all the things that have gone wrong in his life, his hatred to defeat the emperor and, and, and Luke resists. And, um, and, and when he is able to do that and when he ultimately fights his father and, and cuts off his hand and refused to kill his father at that point, the emperor knows. And to me, that's when the emperor knows he's lost. And, and, and I, I started getting it at 12 right now when the emperor's got the force lightning out and he's working to loop. You, you sort mm-hmm. of know, even my 12-year-old self sort of knew, knew this isn't going to work. Um, there's mm-hmm. no way the emperor's winning at this point. The emperor's lost. And of course, Vader picks up the emperor and, 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 and saves him. And you know that last little bit where Luke is dragging Vader out and, and Vader says, look, I'm not going to make it and take off your mask. And, and Luke says, but you'll die. And um, Vader says, you know, nothing can stop that now for once I want to see you with my own eyes. And, you know, that moment, moment when Vader tells him, okay, leave me, the death starts about ready to blow up. You got to go. And Luke says, I'm not going to leave you. I- I'm going to save you. And Vader says, you already have, you were right. Mm-hmm. You were right about me. Um, there was something deep within me that stirred that my whole concept of what it takes to defeat evil had been off that that it wasn't about blowing up the Death Stars. It was about something very different, very personal, um, and that Luke was able to triumph not because of his lightsaber skills um, or because of his fighting skills, but because of his ability to use the Force to see the humanity um, of his father and to invite that humanity to come back out of Darth Vader. And that's ultimately what saves the universe. And it, it started a journey for me. Mm. of thinking deeply about the conflicts that I saw around me um, as a young person and the conflicts in my own life. And how do I approach those? Do I approach those by trying to blow up the Death Star or the lightsaber, or do I do something um, really different? Um, and is the force about something really different? And uh, it's, it's been a journey that I've thought about really the rest of my life. And then watching the prequels really actually laid that out for me. I think George hmm. Lucas, uh, I have some problems with the prequels for sure. <laughs> uh, for, for sure. I know. But I there was shocked to a... hear, hear you say that. Someone, someone, <laughs> someone from your age group saying something positive about the prequels. It's unheard of. <laughs> uh, but I no, think there's ahead. some brilliance to the ideas. What, what, forget about the execution for a minute, but, mm-hmm. but many of the ideas that are in the prequel is really showing not just how Vader becomes Vader, how Anakin becomes Vader, but how the Jedi themselves lose their way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they lose their way, interestingly, um, in the same way that the Emperor was trying to get Luke to lose his way. They get so caught up in this war, the Clone Wars, and, um, and, and all of the sort of formalities of being Jedi that they lose the heart of what it actually means to be a Jedi. They lose the ability to use the Force to sense the goodness in people. And, and mm-hmm. frankly, they, they lose their ability to sense the emperor, uh, the Sith Lord that's 
around them constantly. Yoda, Mos Windu, none of them can sense it mm-hmm. um, anymore. And it leads to the demise of the Jedi as well. And, and, uh, and you know, and all of that actually was a, was something that I thought was a really interesting connection to the original trilogy in explaining how it wasn't just Anakin that lost his way, but the entire Jedi order. Yeah, no, I find that really fascinating. I'm wondering, uh, Blake, do you have any, uh, I, I got, I got thoughts, but I'm wondering Blake, if you have anything you want to add or, or ask any questions. No, no, I totally agree. And, um, I, I mean, I've always been a big fan of Return of the Jedi and, and Luke has always been, I've always admired Luke just because, um, you, you know, you hit it right in the head chat with like, he, he doesn't want to fight his father. He has that innate goodness in him to see, you know, the good things when everyone else had, when had, had lost their way or didn't, didn't see the good things. I, I love that part kind of bring it up, but when he confronts Obi-Wan as a force ghost and he's like, why did you tell me he was my father? And, you know, Obi-Wan says, when he ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and, and, and um, was seduced by the dark side, he Anakin was destroyed. So like even Anakin or even Obi-Wan who grew up with Anakin, like completely had lost faith in Anakin. Didn't think he was, he was there. Thought Vader was completely like, he was completely a lost cause and said that he needed to destroy it to kill Vader uh, essentially. So I think that was such, such great points to me, Chad. And I, I've always liked, you know, Luke, he couldn't face his father and the emperor. He was so confused at why Luke didn't want to have all the power in the world. And, and for, you know, his father, who was this evil guy. So man, I, I, I really, I really love that about Luke and seeing that, that transformative uh, behavior in Luke is, is so cool. You know, Blake, something really interesting that you said that I don't think is a popular take in star Wars is that, and, and certain, certainly something I didn't pick up kind of my first time through the trilogy, and it really takes the prequels to sort of understand it, is that in many ways, Obi-Wan's kind of a villain um, <laughs> in, in Star Hot Wars. take. <laughs> uh, Obi-Wan can't see the humanity of Anakin. You know, that line is such a dehumanizing line uh, to uh, Luke. It's, it's a line that he repeats in New Hope when he's first describing, you know, the sort of origins of Vader and that, the, you know, and, and essentially lying to Luke and telling him someone killed his father. And even in his justification on Dagobah later to Luke, he's still sort of repeating line. He still refuses to see the humanity of Vader. He's still not giving Luke the actual help that he needs, even as a force ghost to, to help Luke defeat to defeat Vader. And then I think if you go back and watch the prequels and you see the Qui-Gon's relationship with Anakin and Obi-Wan's relationship with Anakin, I really think it, it, it plays out. If you watch that carefully, that, that Obi-Wan never really takes the care for Anakin that, that Qui-Gon uh, did or would have. Uh, and while ultimately Anakin is responsible for Anakin's decisions uh, in the movie. I never felt like Obi-Wan was the mentor to Anakin that he really needed to be mm-hmm. uh, to, to help Anakin along. No, totally. Yeah. We actually, since we've been reviewing uh, the prequel movies in our Sabak talk. Yeah. I rewatching them. I have come to like Obi-Wan less and less because he does, he is like exactly what you said. He is not the mentor that Anakin needed. And he, you know, one really good point is Anakin is having these dreams of his mother being, you know, suffering and, and dying. And he's like, Oh yeah, dreams will pass. So just don't worry about your mother anymore. And it's like, it's his, it's his mom. Like, why can't he just, you know, go see if she's okay or something. It's like the Jedi really did lose their way of, you know, letting go of everything and just focusing on themselves. It, it's crazy. It, 
And and when Anakin's, they ask Anakin to spy on the emperor and Anakin's having this talk with, with Obi-Wan about how uncomfortable it is. Again, Obi-Wan just blows off the immorality of, of the morality that Anakin's actually sort of wrestling with. I mean, the moment there's so many little scenes like that, whereas a mentor, instead of uh, Anakin's sort of acknowledgement of the humanity of all of this and, and the, the breathing living force that Qui-Gon keeps talking about, uh, Obi-Wan's focused on, on the more formalities of the force and the more formalities of the Jedi order. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to, in my mind, if I were to make a comparison, he is a religious fanatic. Uh, Obi-Wan is to the religion of the Jedi without actually understanding the religion itself. Yeah, that's. I think that's a really good. I think that's a really good point. And one of the things I want to ask about this really quick because I think it relates to your th- your theory of dangerous love, and something that me and Blake have talked about a lot as we've been reviewing the prequels is how there's this this word attachment comes up a lot, um, and how the the Jedi have this religious relationship with the word attachment. How that they 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 try to reject attachments and not be emotionally attached to anything or to anyone. And that, that I think from like the, the, when I first like went through the prequels and even into the, the original trilogy, I mean, and I got to say prequels first, cause that's what, you know, I grew up on. It always, I always said like, Oh, Anakin's attachment is what really led him to the dark side. Cause he wasn't following dogmatically enough. He wasn't as rigid as he should have been to following the Jedi Order's rules of uh, avoiding attachment. Um, but now it kind of seems like that is sort of turning on its head a little bit as I've grown older and I've started to analyze a little bit more. Because it seems like Qui-Gon and, and really Qui-Gon wasn't that way. And really the, the, the detachment of the Jedi is kind of what leads to their downfall. And as you're talking about dangerous love, you also talk a lot about fear right about how fear is this obstacle in the way of getting to that place where you can collaboratively problem solve and transform conflict and to the jedi attachment is an expression of fear and they make that connection that fear leads to anger to hate to the dark side um and so i'm wondering if you could uh, if i mean th- that almost seems like it's a contradiction there that like we're supposed to reject fear but maybe the attachment part is not what we should reject, but is attachment really an expression of fear? I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my book is uh, Martin Buber, uh, mm-hmm. who is this uh, Jewish philosopher that's writing out of Germany in the 1930s. And he has this theory of I it, I thou. And, mm-hmm. and one of his theories is that human beings are always in connection to each other. They're always attached. Uh, if you will, to each other. How they're attached, though, can be wildly different. And so there's a hyphen, I, it, I, thou. So an I, it attachment is that I'm connected to this human being, but I'm connected in sort of a dysfunctional way. I see them as an object. They don't count the same way that I count. Their needs, wants, and desires, they don't matter as much to me as my own. And then the I, thou is I see them. I see their humanity. I see their trueness of who they are and their needs and wants matter to me like my own. And, and Buber's idea is that we're always in attachment. Um, The the lie, the self-deception lie is to say that we're not. And if we try to, to say, no, 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 I'm separate. We are, we are missing this, this vital piece of reality, which is that I am connected to every living being. Uh, in in one way or the other, which is interesting mm-hmm. because that is a force idea, yeah, right? totally uh, about what the force is. But the Jedi 
seem to be self-deceived about this by the time, uh, at least that we're getting to the prequels. And there is this sense that they can separate themselves um, from others and that they can just be eyes. And it's really interesting because I work in the Pacific with a lot of Pacific Islanders and a lot of people from Oceania in like the Samoan culture, for example, they literally don't even have a word for I. Um, there's only, only words for we. There's no conception of self in just self. It's mm. always in relationship uh, to other people. And I actually think this is a pivotal key idea in dangerous love. This is actually what starts to help us turn from fear is the fact that I can't run from attachment. I can't run from people. I'm always attached to them. It's whether I'm uh, bonded to them in anguish or in love. And I think because of that fear that the Jedi had, that so often our bonds turn to anguish, that so often our attachments um, sink us or drag us down, um, that they try to get away from attachment completely, mm. as opposed to embracing that there is this dual nature, just like there is of the force um, mm -hmm. about attachment and how do I um, recognize it, but then learn how to cultivate the love um, as opposed to the darkness. And I, I think it is part of the downfall of the Jedi. Yeah, that's good. That's that uh, that that actually makes a lot of sense. I like that the Boober um, connection there. Um, you have any thoughts on that at all, Blake? Um, no, I, I that's a great way to put. It. I I completely agree, and something I've never really thought about before. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I mean. I'm just going to, I guess, muse a little bit. And this is, is going to be some re repeat of some of the stuff I've talked about in Sabak Talk. But I've, I've been, since I've started doing pop violence, I've also gone back and rewatched the prequels with, with an, an analytical eye um, because we were going to do it for Sabak Talk and have some episodes on, on the uh, movies. And one thing that I just found really fascinating was everything that we've talked about so far and how um, it's been a, sort of like you've been describing Chad. It's almost like an ex experiential thing for me as well as going through it and really having my feeling like I was on the same side as the Jedi growing up. And then as I've gotten older and I've, and I've tried to understand more about nonviolence and, and just have a deeper connection with, with uh, what the movies might be about. I've, I've that view has changed. And one of the things that um, I found really fascinating is that I, there are some pivotal moments to me in, in Revenge of the Sith that reflect directly on how Return of the Jedi concludes. And I think one of those is when Palpatine tells Anakin to kill Count Dooku. And Anakin does it. And he immediately feels this guilt and he immediately feels bad about it. But that that was almost exactly what Palpatine said to Luke. I think it's almost the exact same lines. Like the 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 word the wording is even quite similar. Um, and and then I I found that there was even another instance where that is then like reflected again, and it's when Mace Windu has presumably defeated Palpatine, and Anakin probably for ulterior motives is begging for him to not strike down Palpatine and Mace Windu is going to do it anyway. And he said, he's too powerful to be left alive. I'm going to strike him down. And you kind of have this reflected again. Um, and so I guess the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is I guess I'm kind of just like wondering, like how would things have gone? How would things have gone 
if Luke hadn't been, if Luke had, if Luke had succumbed the way that the way that they had, and I, I don't know if I don't know if that's even like a worthwhile path to go down, but it, I kind of I'm kind of like contemplating that a little bit. I think it's really fascinating. Uh, there are these pivotal moments where, um, obviously, on one hand, you've got um, Darcidius Palpatine inviting Luke to the dark side. But then because the Jedi themselves are so compromised, uh, he doesn't get the, the clear moral clarity that mm-hmm. he needs from the Jedi. It's, it's confusing to him. And, and, you know, Moss Windu is a great example about that. Look, just the Jedi's participation in the Clone Wars in general, mm-hmm. there's several references. And especially if you watch the Clone Wars series, which I, I really love and um, yeah. think is just great, great Star Wars, mm-hmm. that there's uh, and Ashoka is a, a sort of a great character sort of along these lines as well, who's recognizing the deficiencies of the Jedi order. And I, I think if you, if you really want to see how the Jedi is breaking down, watching the clone wars is actually really illustrative of what's going on in her, um, in her role in everything and her confusion as a young Padawan, Anakin's young Padawan um, yeah. as well to, to the lack of moral clarity in the Jedi universe anymore. But if the Jedi were the guardians of, of peace in the galaxy, which is sort of how they've been referred to and that they're not warriors uh, necessarily in that way. They're not army, they're diplomats. And actually what is that? The clone war starts, uh, sorry, uh, the Phantom Menace starts this way, right? The Phantom Mm -hmm. Menace starts with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan going to negotiate a a resolution to a blockade, not to go in and destroy um, the trade federation uh, uh, armies that are there, but to negotiate this sort of truce and, and so Anakin's getting these signals throughout. Um, he's getting Palpatine on one end, who's who's uh, who's using his attachment to Padme um, as a way um, to to create fear. And you have the Jedi on the other other hand, who have such a lack of moral clarity about their role and all of these things. And Yoda knows. I mean, Yoda's referencing it sort of multiple times. Something's not right here. Mm-hmm. But literally, no one on the Jedi Council has the the the. Uh, clarity anymore to actually do anything about it. Uh, I, I think it's, I, I think there's so many things that Anakin has going against him um, mm-hmm. right now. He doesn't have the Qui-Gon in his life anymore. Um, and that's to the point, I think Phantom Menace, probably the single most pivotal, at least to me, most pivotal moment in, in the prequels is Qui-Gon losing that battle to Darth Ma- with Darth Maul. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to talk about a turning point, in the whole Star Wars, um, to me, it's what if Qui Gon lives and Qui Gon becomes his, um, you know, his his uh, Jedi Master, mm-hmm. and Qui Gon continues to have influence over the Jedi Council uh, and and reminds them of the Living Force. That to me is probably the moment where things turn for Anakin. I'm not sure that it's going to turn out any other way than it's going to turn out um, when Qui Gon dies and he's sort of left with the set of circumstances that he's left with. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, I want to turn it to Blake in a second. But what that made me think of just right off the bat was um, it almost feels like it was an advantage for Luke because I'm trying to think about Luke's character. Right? Where did Luke from within himself find like a space to be able to like muster up this devotion to uh, this love, this dangerous love uh, concept? And I almost feel like it was he was he was kind of lucky that he didn't grow up in the Jedi Order. Um, at least the way that we've seen the Jedi Order, 
because he grew up with these friends and these, the, these relationships that were meaningful and, and powerful. And he got to understand what that kind of bond felt like between humans or between people, I guess I should say in star Wars between people. Um, and Let's just call it for what it is. He had Chewbacca. He had Chewbacca. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if, if Anakin had had Chewbacca, uh, but not just Chewbacca. Think about Han Solo in, yeah. in new hope. Um, who's this scoundrel who's supposed to be selfish but ends up bailing Luke out um, mm-hmm. at the end, does something that's completely irrational um, against his own self-interest, uh, you know, to, to, to help Luke. Luke has these other sets of people around him that are much better role models than Anakin does. Mm-hmm. Going back to what you said about if, what would have happened if Luke, you know, did, is that what you said, right? If Luke yeah. did kill Vader. That, that fight always interest, is so interesting to me. And it's because obviously he's like, I don't want to fight you. I'm not going to fight you. He like refuses to fight Vader. But then once Vader finds out about Leia, that he has a sister and he says, maybe your sister will turn to the dark side. Hmm. And it's almost like, you know, Luke gets this rage and, it, and he gets this rage and starts attacking Vader. And I think he's like, thinks it's okay to tap into that anger to even though we know that that's not the jedi way right they don't mm-hmm. use their passion to fuel their fuel their power but it's like he thinks it's okay because he's defending leia it's for leia's honor and then i just love the part right when he cuts off his hand you can see the anger in luke's eyes and or he cuts off later Vader's hand you can see the the anger in his eyes mm-hmm. he's so mad he's so furious and like that thought does cross him like oh i want to do this let's do this let's, let's kill vader he he deserves to die and so I, I love that part where like, I think he could, I think he definitely could have turned to the dark side. And I don't know if his relationship with the emperor, that, that is, that is still crazy to me. If, if I don't know if they would ever work, have worked out together like a master and apprentice, but <laughs> I definitely think Luke could have turned to the dark side. And then, you know, he, he delivers that, you know, one of the best lines in all of star Wars, you know, I'm a, I am a Jedi like my father before me. And, Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just love, I, I love that part because it shows that Luke is human, that he was, wasn't this, this perfect person of, oh yeah, I can just easily fight Vader and, you know, save, save everyone. It's like, he was tempted with the dark side. He felt it. He felt how strong it made it, how good it made him feel, but he mm-hmm. still rejected it all. That's why I really liked, I've always liked Luke because of that moment. The other thing, Blake, about that moment that is really powerful is, you know, part of conflict transformation is being able to see the humanity and see ourselves and others, right? And so when Vader's hand is off and he sees the wires, right? Uh, that this was not his physical hand. And he look, he looks at his own hand um, that, that Vader um, cut off there. I think there's a really sort of powerful connection at that moment that in some ways, right? <laughs> this is another thing I have in common, right? Like, is this, this hand? Um, and, you know, that Star Wars never explained explores what that loss was like for, for Luke or what have you. But I, I think that that, that is, you know, Lucas was very clever um, in bringing us sort of back at the end of Return of the Jedi to the end of uh, Empire Strikes Back. Um, and now, now the, the situation has been reversed. Vader cuts off his hand. Now he's cut off his hand. But then when he sees that he, didn't, he did, doesn't actually cut off a hand, but this sort of robotic hand, uh, I, I think it's one of those moments where Vader actually and interestingly Luke sees himself and and I think it helps him out actually see where that path could go uh which is which is so fascinating to me and you know one of the things and I know it's quite controversial um about all of this but this is you know a lot of people don't like 
The Last Jedi. Some people really do. I don't know what your thoughts are on whether you like it, but I actually loved the Luke Skywalker arc in, in The Last Jedi. Uh, I didn't love the whole movie, um, but I loved, I loved the Luke Skywalker arc because I think that it, it also wrestled with then Luke trying to build a new Jedi order and the, and the challenges that he faced and the fear that he ultimately gets. And, you know, what's up with these Jedis, you know, always going into exile. Like they're always, they're always running away from everybody and, and you're living in remote, remote places. I mean, Obi-Wan does that. Yoda's doing that. Um, Luke's doing that. Ashoka does that for a while. Um, and, and then having to sort of come back and confront that again and confront that relationship with Kylo Ren um, and does it in a way, interestingly enough, um, that I think is going to ultimately be a turning point for Kylo Ren, though it doesn't ha- really happen until the next movie. I, I, I love that that arc, that Luke, even when he defeats the Emperor, still is wrestling with how to apply this um, and how to teach it and how to grow it and how to do peace building um, in the world. And his failures uh, eat at him uh, in mm-hmm. a really, really, really powerful way. Yeah, I find that really fascinating as well. And that makes me, I, I, mean, I think that one, and I will say, you know, I mean, The Last Jedi and Blake knows is not my favorite movie, but I have grown to appreciate a little bit more about, and I've said this to Blake as well, like I've grown to appreciate a little bit more about Luke's character in The Last Jedi. Um, and for exactly the reasons you're saying, and I, I love that he talks about the hubris of the Jedi Order and how that was problematic and and that he's sort of realizing exactly what we're talking about right now. And that's sort of why he has this conflict in this and he goes off and, and, and cuts himself off. But I think, and one of the things, that's actually a good transition to uh, another point that I wanted to talk about, which is, and I've, and I've seen this analysis of The Last Jedi where what Luke is realizing, well, this is a suggestion that I've seen, I've, I, that I've seen other people write, is, is where we, and this is a part of the conversation I think we need to have, is when we're talking about structures and systems of violence, um, we, I think that there, there, though that conversation is parallel to, or, uh, but it's not identical to when we're talking just about conflict, at least in my mind. Um, and I think that I, I've seen this analysis of people saying that Luke is realizing that there was structurally something wrong about the idea of a Jedi order in general, and that it wasn't just the fact that the Jedi had gone astray, but he, he was, he was realizing that there was deeper work that needed to be done. And that was, he needed to discontinue certain structures or things like that. Um, and I'm, I don't want to really posit that, I guess, for a conversation point, cause I'm not even sure I agree with that analysis necessarily, but I was wondering if you could talk about Chad, and you can talk about what I just talked about or this question, I guess, is basically how could this dangerous love concept, how does it apply to situations where we're talking about dismantling systems of oppression, systemic violence? Yeah. You know, always when we start thinking about individual change, and then we start thinking about larger group or structural change, the conversation gets messier. Um, because there's things that, that we can control within ourselves that, that we often feel powerless. In fact, the very people that are often oppressed um, in the system often feel powerless to change that, that, that system that oppresses them. And so they're often asked to change themselves while they have to continue to suffer a system that goes unchanged. 
and 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 to be okay with it. And so the the cultural violence that that we can conquer internally uh, doesn't doesn't defeat the structural violence that continues to uh, uh, afflict us externally. And you know, it's a question that I've wrestled with my, my my whole life. And and you know, if you if you watch Star Wars, it's it's so easy to see how the Empire. Um, participates in structural violence. It's harder to see how the Jedi do it. Uh, but I mm-hmm. think that, that it's, it's actually really important that you do because one of the things that I've, I've learned painfully, um, so painfully as a peace builder is that my very own systems of working and, and working to help people and to, to do peace building can, can also serve as a form of oppression. Uh, and that the ways of sort of thinking about um, my work or peace builders or what have it, have you can ultimately come back and, and look like the forms of oppression that I'm actually um, trying, trying to fight. And I, I think one of the lures that we face is that there's good and there's bad. And the good don't have this problem and the bad all do. And because of that, I always sort of focus externally um, not just on myself, but uh, you know, externally on, on those other groups where I can't see the sort of weakness in my own ways of thinking, uh, my own blind spots, my own sort of self-deception. And, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, you think about Luke, he's idealizing the Jedi order. He actually, when he proudly tells the, the emperor, I'm a, I'm a Jedi like my father, I don't mm-hmm. think he has any clue what that actually means. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think he has any, any conceptualization of all of what, what happened to the Jedi Order and why maybe that isn't the greatest thing um, to say um, in the moment. But, but Luke clings to it, right? The idea that the Jedi were the good guys, the, the, you know, the Empire, the bad, or the Sith are the bad. Uh, and and you know, we are the guardians of the light of the force. And, and you know, I, I watch this sort of play out around us today as, as we think about and talk about fighting oppression and dismantling structures of violence, dismantling structures of racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, um, you know, what discrimination and what have you, that the, the, the true challenge to me in peace building is the ability to recognize and see those systems and work to dismantle them while seeing the humanity of the people that have built those systems um, of power. And that when we lose sight of their humanity, we end up reconstructing systems of violence that look very much like the systems of violence that we're trying to take down. Um, and they might, they might be painted a different color, they might look a different way, um, but they still have at their root this idea that some people count more than others, that, that um, my needs and wants and desires are more important than others are, um, that some beliefs um, are uh, beliefs that uh, are, are always right and some beliefs are always wrong. And it, it actually sort of takes on this very religious, this sort of religious sort of connotation that I have this sort of worldview mm-hmm. that constantly is positing good versus evil with me on the good side and, and the other person on the evil side. And, and, and that to me is, is why I often think that, that our attempts to d- dismantle structural violence ultimately fail is that we actually use the tools and weapons uh, uh, of structural violence um, and of direct violence to dismantle structural violence. And so what's been so fascinating in my life, you know, watching someone like Martin Luther King was him 
and being inspired by Gandhi and um, being inspired by Howard Thurman and, and, you know, many other people of how do we attack systems of oppression while not attacking the people that often benefit from it um, and uh, are perpetuating um, it? How do we see the humanity of our enemy while at the same time exposing uh, that the systems that our enemies have built are repressive and, and need to change. And, and walking that fine line um, between those two, uh, when King was at his best and when you know, Gandhi were, were at their best, uh, they, they were able to walk that line um, in a really, really powerful way. And, and it's just extremely hard line uh, to actually walk. And so I, I often hear, oh, well, you know, dangerous love. Yes, it can change my heart towards a person, but it's not going to dismantle those structures. And, and my, my response to that is it's actually the very thing that calls in um, others that are in conflict to actually um, look at and, and hold themselves accountable for those systems and, and to change it. But when we call out people in those systems, um, and, and the call out is, is done in a dehumanizing, degrading um, way, uh, we actually no longer invite them to change those structures. We're actually inviting them to reinforce them, um, to actually we give them more justifications um, to build them. And, you know, one of the interesting things watching Rebels, uh, again, the, you know, the Star Wars, uh, you know, cartoon mm-hmm. is at times in Rebels, you get the perspective of the empire um, and, mm. and people that work in the empire and the empire are loaded with justifications of why what they're actually doing is good, um, why what they're actually doing is the right thing and people on it and why the rebels are actually the terrorists, uh, why the rebels are actually um, wrong. And I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to swallow, but it's an interesting perspective that many, and I think there's a, there's a moment and I can't remember which one it was in, or maybe it was in Mandalorian where mm. someone talks about the number of people that died on the Death Star. Hmm. Um, right. The, the, you know, the millions of people um, that, 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 that literally died on the Death Star, uh, something that's never occurred to me in all the years of watching Star Wars. I've not, not once thought about those people, their families, um, the legacy of, of revenge and violence that was felt. And, and all of them sort of at that moment that, you know, in this one sort of instant, these millions of people um, were wiped away and, and to get to true change. And, you know, this is, and this is just so hard to wrestle with. If you really want to see change, if you really want to see those systems change, I can't change them by using the same tools by which they were created in the first place. Um, I can't use power. I can't use shame. I can't use um, uh, dehumanization as a way to get to a world where there is no dehumanization. So Gandhi talks about the, uh, the means or the ends in the making. Um, and, and so often because in our fight for justice or for what we believe is right, we end up choosing unjust means to do so. We shouldn't be surprised that the end result is not um, the peace that we're looking for, but more conflict. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think that that um, that's definitely something I want to continue to like sit with and, and to think about because, you know, it and, and one of the things that I appreciated in the, and this is a line I remember from the Mandalorian was it was in Mandalorian season one, the client, he makes the comment to Mando 
that every every system the empire touches it it improves and he kind of gives these statistical categories of how the empire is is benefiting all these places and that um the likes of mando or the likes of you know these the what was now sort of the former rebel alliance was bad and 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 talking about how well i i guess we get that glimpse into the post uh return of the jedi world in in the mandalorian um and that's been some of my favorite things to explore in the mandalorian is to just kind of like ponder on like how does the how does a galaxy recover from such upheaval and and violent conflict and it and it doesn't seem like it's going well and i guess we get that taste as well from the last jedi so yeah that's the first order right the first order is born again um out of that uh and and that doesn't mean that you don't fight um I, i think it's the tools that you fight with and i think you know luke gives us this great example and Return of the Jedi about what actually dismantles, you know, evil mm-hmm. and, and what doesn't. And, and, you know, the emperor gives us the other way, which is fight evil with evil, um, mm-hmm. fight hate with hate, fight anger with anger. Right. Um, and the, and the emperor knows that even if he's struck down in the moment, he's perpetuated the system mm-hmm. um, and, and the system of oppression continues. Uh, even if, even if it costs, the emperor's life, uh, he's, he's put into place a system that, that will continue to grow and perpetuate. And, and that temptation, temptation is so, so strong. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've encountered the work of Loretta Ross at all, uh, Mm. you know, a feminist reproductive rights scholar who recently wrote a, a, a really interesting, um, op-ed in, in the New York times about calling in versus calling out. Um, Mm. but both of them are about accountability both of them are about sort of exposing the sort of injustices of the world. But one is about sort of calling my enemy into a space where I can reconcile and find a way forward for both of us. And one is about sort of exacting um, justice and vengeance back on the people that, that created the system in the first place, but only surprise, it shouldn't surprise any of us, but often only uh, provokes them to dig in their heels even even further and to fight even harder against the cause, the cause that we are at the same time trying to, um, that, that means so much to us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, her, her words just have always been really stirring to me because as an African-American feminist um, who has been a champion for human rights and reproductive rights, she's been attacked relentlessly um, her entire life um, for all of these sort, sort of stands. And, and yet she finds this ability um, because of how deeply she actually believes in the causes to go about this a different way. And, and, and I think Luke is on that path. And I, I'm so interested about, you know, there's so many gaps of, mm-hmm. of where Luke yeah. is, you know, between there and Last Jedi and what mistakes he makes along the way and, and what order he was even trying to build. Um, Mm -hmm. coming out of, you know, the empire um, being defeated the next time. I mean, there's so many things that we don't, we don't know. But one thing that stands out to me about the Mandalorian was the very last episode, which was maybe one of my favorite Star Wars of all time. 
and in, in my my opinion, because I'm a kid still at heart with Star Wars, and uh-huh. as much as we talk about this, you know, deeply and analytically or whatever, um, there's still the little kid in me that sees green, uh, sees one X-wing fighter and sees yeah. green lightsaber, <laughs> and my my, the, my my family's looking at me as I'm jumped up out of out of my couch because um, I somehow avoided all the spoilers of the Mandalorian and looked like some of those videos that that sort of show people there. Yeah, but you know, um, um, Grogu, the the young Jedi uh, trainee at Baby Yoda, um, yeah, he had attached himself uh, to Mando. Um, Mando had changed. The Mandalorian had changed because of this one attachment. This, you know, I mean, think about a Mandalorian being a solo um, person for this one attachment and the sort of love that's there. So when Luke comes up, uh, Grogu doesn't really even know where to go. Um, right? He keeps sort of looking back and forth. And there's sort of this moment again. And I'm like, here, this is the brilliance uh, of, of, of Dave Filoni and, you know, and, and, um, um, and John Favreau and, and everyone else. They got right back to the heart of it again, um, mm-hmm. right back to the heart of this attachment. And what does love mean? And how does love transform people in ways that none of the other, other things can, can transform? And here's sort of Luke showing up as the last Jedi. And here's this little Jedi um, who's formed this deep attachment and in the process has learned to love and has, has, has Mando loving um, Mm -hmm. in a way that's deeply touching. Um, And, and again, sort of shows that, you know, at the end of the day, Star Wars is not about all the cool, uh, you know, special effects and, and, and all that stuff. It's about, it's about people uh, and it's about relationships and it's about trauma um, and it's about overcoming that trauma. Um, and it's about redemption and, and, and growing and becoming something uh, and, and over, overcoming mistakes. And um, it just really hit me when I watched The Mandalorian that we've just seen the same arc now happen, happen mm-hmm. with Mando in just these two seasons um, and, and what, it, what it means and what's, what I believe Star Wars is actually trying to tell us. Yeah, totally. That's a great, that's a really great thought. Uh, very profound. I mean, I, I agree. I think the essence of Star Wars is about change and, you know, the whole, the original, the original trilogy and then, you know, the prequels, the first six movies are about Anakin, right? It's Anakin's arc of his fall as a Jedi to become Darth Vader to his redemption. And, and I've, I really liked that about um, the Mandalorian, how they did like this completely, completely changed Mando to completely change his own character through his own, his own actions, his own emotions. It wasn't like someone forcing him to change or like, Oh yeah, I, I don't want to like, he just didn't like the moment he saw Grogu, it's just like, he had this intense moment of, Oh wow. There's more to life than, you know, like there's more life than just fighting. And, and, and this, this so-called religion that he's in of weapons or his religion fighting is his, his religion. He has that moment where he sees this, this, this baby Grogu that's, lost just like he was he was a foundling he makes that connection with him and instantly connects with him and it, every episode he changes his his compassion is shown his humanity is shown and i've loved that about the mandalorian that's why i really like it's kind of a forgotten episode but the sanctuary episode uh season one episode four is mm-hmm. he shows this compassion of he sees these people in need and he wants to help them even though they're greatly greatly outnumbered greatly out experienced and yet he wants to help them because he knows that they need help and at the end, he's tempted to forgo his life of killing and fighting and, you know, settle down with uh, Omera in that village. And so I love that. Mm-hmm. I love the whole arc of, Mandalor- of Mando and 
um, everything. And so that's a great point you make is that this really is, that's the essence of Star Wars. And, and there's this line that I love that said all the time in Mandalorian, this is the way, um, right? Um, and at the end of season two, this is the way, um, right? Uh, and, and, you know, Star Wars is showing us this is the way. And for anybody that's been hurt um, in their life, that's suffered through dis- disappointment, through, who's gone through trouble, who's felt um, the pull of hatred, um, who's felt the, full, the, the pull of this idea that everything's gone against me and everything is wrong. Um, whether you, know, you think about Anakin, you think about Luke, you think about the, the lives that they've lived, the Mandalorian's life, you know, whatever, um, that the dark side calls to us. The dark side calls us to give into that, to that hate, that frustration, um, that anger, to, to, to live into it and use it um, as a way of, of gaining power, of gaining an, an upper hand, of, of, of coming back and exerting justice or revenge or whatever you may want to call it on the universe um, because of how I've been mistreated um, and, and to give in. And, and then there's this other way um, that calls us to love and calls us to light, um, that calls us to sort of connect with the living force um, and the living connection that is between you know, each of us um, in these moments, and that this duel of the fates, this this ultimate this ultimate sort of decision that we face, not not just like in one big moment of our life. And I, I like that about Star Wars and Luke Skywalker's arc, but many many times in our life, right? Uh, about where which is the way, which is the way to peace, which is the way to happiness, which is the way to the sort of change that we want to see um, in the world, and how do we react to that? Uh, and, and to me, that's always been the call. Um, and the dark side has called me many times and I've, I've succumbed to the dark side uh, many times and I've let my anger and my frustration, um, and my hate take hold uh, of me. And then it's very easy to sort of justify everything that I've said and done sort of in those moments. Um, the other way is harder. Um, it's more dangerous. It requires vulnerability. It requires us to, um, let go uh, for a, a while of, of it just being about how it impacts me and how, how I think about us and not just us, meaning my group or the, my people that I ally with or the people that are just cl- sort of close to me, but us as in us, uh, as, as, a, as a people. Um, and in those moments when I've walked that way, as hard as that way has been, those have been the moments when I felt contentment and peace um, and actually have seen, and, you know, I've been able to work with Israelis and Palestinians and in uh, and, and a number of sort of different environments. That's the way that I've actually seen that not only do people start to transform, but actually systems start to transform because people now have a desire, including the people that created and are benefiting from those systems uh, to actually sort of change them, that this is the way. This has just been really awesome to talk about it. And I, I just love that there are real world connections within Star Wars. So I'm, I'm really grateful that we can make those connections and things that really can apply to people can learn from it. So I, I really like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's, and you know, I always do a plug for my own podcast in my own podcast. I don't know why I do it, but that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> you know, it's all about, you know, finding these expressions of our own culture and seeing ourselves in those expressions and saying like, how can I, how can I take that and, and, you know, learn about the world around me? Because at the end of the day, you know, people in the world around me are the ones who are creating 
Star Wars or whatever other movie I'm reviewing in pop violence. And so that's been really fun. Um, and yeah, I love Star Wars. I want to say a big thank you to both of you. Thank you so much for, for being here and, and for sharing your thoughts and especially to you, Chad, for coming on to Sabak Talk and, and talking a little about Star Wars. Uh, I, I end up on a lot of podcasts talking about a lot of different things and this is the <laughs> happiest, happiest I've ever been. Uh, I, there's, I, I just truly have a deep love for Star Wars and a deep appreciation for what people have done with it, especially more recently mm -hmm. um, and, and bringing it relevant again. And so to be able to talk about it, connect it to peace building and for Star Wars fans that are, are, are still thinking about blowing up Death Stars is sort of the way forward. Maybe this will give them a new frame. Uh, to be able to to appreciate the movies at a deeper level and and invite them uh, to go on Luke's journey uh, the same way uh, that Luke did. So I really appreciate what you're doing and the whole endeavor of the podcast. And uh, um, it's great, great work. To our Pop Violence listeners, thank you so much for being here for another edition of pop violence. I want to say thank you to Blake for co-hosting this podcast and for facilitating this crossover episode with Sabak Talk. I want to say a big thank you to Chad for bringing his thoughts and insights to this interview. There's a lot to unpack here and so much more could be said about the theories and the ideas of peace building and nonviolence. And so much more could be said about the stories of Star Wars and the struggles and the politics of what's going on there. But hopefully what we can come away with is a basic introduction to what peace building looks like conceptually and a new lens to critique the complex politics, powers, and stories from a galaxy far, far away. Please, if you can, share this podcast with your friends and leave us a, a like and a review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps. And tune in for another episode in two weeks' time. Thank you so much for listening, and may the Force be with you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.